And if you have a Bible, you can turn to Proverbs chapter 3. The reading of God's Word comes from Proverbs chapter 3. We'll read verses 1 through 12. Lend your attention. This is the very Word of God. My son, do not forget my teaching, but let your heart keep my commandments. For length of days and years of life and peace they will add to you. Let not steadfast love and faithfulness forsake you. Bind them around your neck. Write them on the tablet of your heart, so you will find favor and good success in the sight of God and man. Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. It will be healing to your flesh and refreshments to your bones. Honor the Lord with your wealth and with the first fruits of all your produce. Then your barns will be filled with plenty and your vats will be bursting with wine. My son, do not despise the Lord's discipline or be weary of his reproof. For the Lord reproves him whom he loves. As a father delights, as a father, the son in whom he delights. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Turn me in prayer as we ask God's blessing upon his word read and preached. Almighty Father, how good it is to be impressed by your word and its truth and the plain attestations of your great love for us and the Lord Jesus Christ, the provision you continue to make in instructing us, writing your law upon our hearts, purchasing us, leading us, confirming unto us your presence in seasons of much and in seasons of little, by green pastures and in the valley of the shadow of death. Our choice, these blessings are, Lord, press them upon our hearts as you exalt the Son, as the fount of every blessing. Prepare our hearts to receive of your word, Lord, that we may be edified, encouraged, and strengthened thereby. And we ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. <clears throat> if you have a Bible, turn to Matthew 22 for the New Testament and Sermon Scripture. well-known passage in Matthew 22 is uh, the text which will ground our meditation in conjunction with Westminster Shorter Catechism, question 42. But first, the reading of God's Word. But when the Pharisees had heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together. And one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to test him. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And a second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. 
On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Thus ends the reading of God's word. Question 42 asks, what is the sum of the Ten Commandments? The sum of the Ten Commandments is to love the Lord our God with all our heart and with all our soul, with all our strength, and with all our mind, and our neighbor as ourselves. Amen. There can be a tendency to shrink back from the talk of love as the heart of Christianity. I think this is because love has been terribly sentimentalized. Mm. The popular notions of love root love primarily in the feelings. Uh, something into which one falls into or out of, as the case may be. It's a terribly fickle thing. All of our popular parlance sort of reifies this notion. I love you, but I'm not in love with you. Or somehow I fell out of love with you. Well, you do a lot of falling. Are you okay? <laughs> this love is a trippy thing. To place love as a matter of our feelings is to do love as this most noble virtue, a grave disservice. And we ought not to shrink back from the talk of love as the heart of Christianity. This ennobling virtue, this garland of grace, this crown of beauty. For Christianity serves the true and living God, who John tells us is love. You can get that wrong, but we have a mandate to get it right. In love, the Father sent forth the Son to save sinners. In this, God shows his love, in that Christ died for us, while we were enemies. The Lord Jesus Christ has loved us and laid down his life for us. The Holy Spirit sheds the love of God abroad in our hearts and brings about, as the first mentioned fruit of new life, love. <laughs> Paul tells us that faith Hope and love are the greatest thing. And then he really throws us for a loop and says, but the greatest of these is love. Love never ends. Faith and hope are temporary. They're virtues appropriate for this age that is passing away. An age of brutality where hope is necessary, but hope won't be necessary when one realizes what one hopes for. Faith won't be necessary when one stares face to face and enjoys by sight what we now enjoy by faith. Faith, hope, and love are the greatest things, but the greatest of these is love because the scaffolding of faith and hope falls away and love remains. Love bridges the gap between this age and the age to come. Love fulfills the law. Paul tells us in Romans 
13. Jesus tells us that the world will know that you are my disciples by your love for one another. Those are just examples I could think of in five minutes. I'm sure you can add examples to the list of the centrality and the excellencies of Christianity as the religion of true love. Not a love that's sentimentalized, not a love that's pitted against truth, but a love that rejoices in truth, is birthed by truth, is sustained in truth as a gift from the God of love. So it's no surprising that the Lord Jesus Christ summarizes all that God calls man to do with one word, <laughs> really, love, comprises all of our duties towards God, all of our duties towards one another. Now, the scene in Matthew's gospel is one of intense trial. All the nerds had gathered to test him. All the geeks had turned out to see if they could be the one to trip him up. It's on par with having to fend your thesis or having to sustain your exams. I'll get them. I watch the nerds show up to test the candidates for ministry every time we have Presbytery. <laughs> All the nerds put the other nerd through intense scrutiny. <laughs> I feel like I can say that as a nerd. <laughs> The Lord is being grilled. He's being examined. They're trying to trip him up with these questions. The Pharisees trying to trip him up with a question about paying taxes to a tyrant. The Sadducees try to trip him up with a question on the resurrection in this odd scenario where a man has had subsequently seven wives. And every answer he gives, they go away silent. They marvel. They're astonished at this one, this embodiment of wisdom, this embodiment of goodness, the one who is the truth, unsurprisingly, silences all those who are seeking to use truth to trip up the one who is truth. Not surprising that he emerges victorious in this contest. Then this third question comes. Remember, Matthew loves threes. The third question comes before he asks them a question, which is what he does in the next section. And they ask him, which is the greatest commandment? Now, interestingly, this doesn't seem to be an agreed upon question. It was a, a hotly debated question. There's over 600 laws, <laughs> the rabbis counted. Over 600 laws. Which one is the most important? You're constantly debating this wrestling with this question they made various proposals but there was no consensus on it so they're likely putting to him a question upon which there is no agreed upon answer to get a question right that no one agrees on the answer and shows that you're in a different class altogether <laughs> it's the thesis that changes the world <laughs> and it comes from the lips of our lord but we can mark how God is facilitating these proud hearts to be the occasion for the marvelous display of his wisdom and his goodness in the Lord Jesus Christ. He does answer them. It's a mark of his condescension. And he provides an answer that is memorable 
and striking. Jesus answered, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two depend all the law and the prophets. What does he mean that it's the great commandment? The first commandment. When we speak about God's commandment, should we talk about lesser and greater? Weightier and lighter? Jesus does use that language. He uses this elsewhere in Matthew 5. If you can recall, he talks about the danger of someone loosening the least of these commandments. Do you remember that episode? Or elsewhere in Matthew 23, he indicts the Pharisees for neglecting the weightier things of the law. It's the same sort of set of considerations. The weightier things of the law, justice, faith, and mercy. It's interesting to note that the use of the least commandment language in Matthew 5 occurs in a section where he's expostulating the moral law. So it's not something that we can say was only appropriate for that age of ceremonial law and civil law. The Lord is acknowledging its validity as a distinction in the kingdom of God. But it's a strange category for us, isn't it? What does he mean that this is the first and great commandment? Well, he decidedly does not mean that we're free to disregard whatever we decide is a lesser commandment. <laughs> he says the exact opposite in Matthew. Anyone who teaches someone to loosen the least commandment will be called least. So our fleshly instinct says, well, well the, the least commandments, at least we can disregard those. <laughs> God's word checks the flesh. He says, no, 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 that's not what opens up to us through this paradigm. He also doesn't mean that one is less guilty before God for transgressing a lesser commandment. Scripture is plain. If one violates in a single point of the law, one is liable for the full curse that the moral law demands. Failing in a minor point of God's law ushers in the full weight of the law's curse. So then what is he saying? He's saying, this is the heart of the matter. He's saying, this is the principle which beats at the heart of all the other commandments. He's saying all of God's command have one or both of these principles at their heart. And if you miss the heart of the matter, you miss the whole thing. So then he's saying these are central or foundational. That's how he ends, right? On these depend all the law and the prophets. To depend upon something is to rest upon it, to hang from it, to be built upon it. You could try to build apart from these things, but what you're going to end up with is an abomination. And in many ways, that's what the Pharisees were guilty of. They were building their structures of commandments apart from this beating heart of love towards God and love towards neighbor. And so Christ indicts them. He says, if you understood what it meant that I desire mercy and not sacrifice, then you would not have condemned the guiltless. 
He's saying this is the heart of the matter. Matthew Henry summarized, he says, these are the spring and the fountain of all of the rest of the commandments. I think our own questions on the Sabbath can be uh, illustrative here. If you approach the question of Sabbath keeping via the minutiae, you're going to get it wrong. Undoubtedly. You're going to miss the heart of the matter. But to approach the question via the heart positions you to get the minutiae right. I hope you can see what I'm doing here. Try to approach this Sabbath by listing all that's forbidden. You can't go to family parties. Can't go to football games. You definitely can't get gas. I don't even care if you run out on the way to church. Don't even think about throwing that baseball to your son. You can't talk about this. You can't talk about that. You approach it through the fringes, through the peripheral, through the minutiae, and you miss the heart. You don't just miss the heart. You destroy the heart. You end up with something ugly. But if you approach it through the heart, you get to fellowship intimately and uniquely with the king of heaven. That's what you get to do on the Sabbath. You get to taste the heavenly rest in public worship that the Lord of the Sabbath has won for us. You get to rejoice in truth with fellow Christians who bow the knee to Jesus Christ. You get to set aside your earthly labors for a whole day without a pang of concern that the Lord is going to provide for your earthly needs. If that picture starts to thrill the heart, I assure you the details will fall into place. The main thing stays the main things and the minor things fall in order. The Lord makes the same point, saying the main thing is love of God and love of neighbor. If you lose the sight of that, then you can take good secondary things and kill people with them. You can take Christian worship and do that, can't you? You can make that a stick with which you beat someone to death. You can take family worship and do that, can't you? You make it a stick and you beat someone to death with it. Keep the heart as the heart. And the other matters fall into place. He says the heart of the matter is love of God. This is what God calls us to. This is what God calls all of us to love of God with all that you are and all that you have. That's what it means. Jesus cites Deuteronomy 6 here. The Shema. Shema from the verb to hear. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Notice that that root, that call to love God is rooted in who God is and what he has done for us. The Lord is one. That's who God is. That's theology proper. We frequently think of our love for God being the result of all that he's done for us. And that's right. But there's a more basic layer still. The reason he's done for us the things that he's done is because he is who he is. 
Did you track with that? We rejoice and praise this God for the gifts that he gives, and that's right, but there's a more basic level. He's worthy of our love because he is the supreme good. The unchangeable one, so he's always good. The eternal one, the infinite one, the holy one, the wise one, the righteous one, the powerful one. Everything that he is screams, I am worthy of your unfettered and unqualified love. And to bring that love about, he gives. And so it's not just who he is, it's also what he's done. Hear, O Israel, the Lord, your God, that's the covenant name of God, and the unique relationship that he stands to his people. The only true and living God is your God. All the nations serve idols. The world serves the God of this world. Dreadful. Not you. You belong to the true and living God. You belong to the eternal, infinite, omnipotent one. You belong to the one who has redeemed you. Who has taken you for himself. Made you his unique possession. There is ample reason to love this God. It's worth noting that this anthropology here that attends the clause, not only do you have the theology that attends this call, but you have the anthropology. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength. Presses upon us that God made us to love him. It's not as if he created us and then, oh, I guess I'll just enter into relationship with this one that I've created. He created us for the distinct purpose of entering into that unique relationship with us. He honored man with this unique position in this world, in this earth. He placed him as the crown jewel and he equipped him with these remarkable faculties, this remarkable vitality. The purpose of which was to terminate its love upon the true and living God. He fashioned us for this purpose and he gave us everything for this purpose. Jesus cites Deuteronomy 6 and says, this is the heart of the matter. Love the Lord your God with all that you are in all that you have. And this love is far more than just a faint fondness for the object. It's a thick and it's a rich verb. It entails a wholehearted loyalty, a wholehearted trust, a wholehearted adoration. An exclusivity of dependence. This is Lancelot's love for Arthur. When he meets this great king, 
and declares, I love this king. I will serve this king. All that I have, all of this vast ability that I have is now in his service, for he is worthy of it. And those are the types of scenarios we see this verb used in a, in a logical way. We hear of the love of servants for good masters. We hear of the love of Ruth for Naomi. We hear of the love of Judah and Israel for David. It's more than just a passing fondness. It's a delight and it's an allegiance. It's the direction that you're looking. It's the one who's identified as the chief and choicest good. And everything else falls into place from there. It's interesting to note that Moses goes on in the Deuteronomy passage and tells you practically what this love looks like. Verse 6, right after he says, love the Lord your God, he says, these words that I command you shall be upon your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children. What's the practical face of God's love? Love for God. What's the practical face of our love for God, according to Moses? Attentiveness to his word. You're interested in what he has to say. In fact, you want to devour what he has to say. You want it emblazoned upon your heart. People get tattoos to show their allegiance. So he's like, tattoo this on my heart to show my allegiance to you. This is a practical phase of this call to love. God is devouring his word. Storing it in the heart and then teaching it to those who are entrusted to our care. And that makes sense. We're all proselytizers for the things that we love. I'm sure you've heard of the great Leo Tolstoy at some point in this church. I wonder why. It's because you can't help trying to get other people to love the thing that you love, to enjoy the thing that you enjoy, to delight in the thing that you delight in. God has designed us this way. <laughs> he says, with God as the chief object of our love, it's quite natural that we're going to devour what he has to say. And we're going to extend that goodness to others, particularly those under our immediate care, our children. We're going to raise them to know this God. What does he mean when he says the second is like it? The second command is like it. Love your neighbor as yourself. Well, it's like it in that it's also concerned with love. <laughs> it's not don't kill them. Don't take their stuff. <laughs> our duties towards our neighbor are summarized with the same heart, a heart of love. It's like it in that it encompasses all of our duties towards man as the first encompasses all of our duties towards God. And it's also like it in that our love for our neighbor demonstrates our love for God. Matthew Henry explains a right love to our brother 
whom we have seen is both an instance and evidence of our love to God, whom we have not seen. And there he's quoting John. I think that's one of the most humbling considerations that we can undertake. Do you want to know how much you love God? Ask yourself how much you love your neighbor. It should be humbling. You could even start in the church. Ask how much you love your brother or sister in Christ. What ought our face to be towards them? He tells us, love them like you love yourself. Well, what does that mean? Well, whose well-being do you consider as a matter of course? You don't need to force yourself to do it. It comes to you most naturally. You don't have to be prompted to ask, what about me? <laughs> what do I need? What would be best for me? Those questions come to us readily. And it's interesting that to a certain extent, there's some validity to those questions in that God has designed us to have a certain natural concern for our bodies and our souls, for our own welfare. Isn't this partly what beats at the heart of why we flee to Christ? We flee to Christ so that it'll save me. <laughs> like, that's, that's quite natural. You are in a burning building, and there is one who saves you. May his name be praised. So the real problem seems to be not that we have concern for ourselves, but rather the intensity and the constancy and the primacy which we have concern for ourselves. But he seems to be tapping into that legitimate strand to say, love your neighbor as yourself. As naturally as you raise concern about your own well-being, raise concern about well-being of others. As naturally as you think, well, what do I need? Think, what do others need? Isn't this what Paul instructs us is having the mind of Christ? Prioritize the interests of others, he says. Think about how contrary that is. The current messages that the world has just appropriated, that have even crept way into the church. If you, it's quite intense. He says, as natural as you think, how do I realize my good in this situation? Let that be the naturalness of you saying, how do I realize his good in this situation? How do I realize their good in this situation, even if it comes at cost to me? And the reason why we can do that is because we have received infinite blessing in the Lord Jesus Christ as those who are rich beyond all telling. He now calls us into this life of self-giving. Love of God and love of neighbor. Maybe all you do need is love. 
Because we can certainly take a moment and imagine the loveliness of a world in which we were devoted to these calls with all that we are and all that we have. Devoted to the love of God as the one who is infinitely lovely. Devoted to the love of others because we have been loved with an eternal love that frees us to love others. This would have been the case in the state of innocence. Adam and Eve, most naturally, would have loved God and loved one another. It would have been as natural as breathing to them, as natural as eating, as delightful as running. Because that's what they were designed for. Yesterday, I watched the highlights of the men's and women's NCAA cross-country championships. I know you guys were all waiting for those with bated breath. <laughs> but these runners, they're amazing. These are remarkable runners. They're truly amazing. I mean, really astonishing. I was watching them run, and I thought of that famous uh, Eric Liddell quote. He says, this is the Scottish Presbyterian Olympic gold medalist runner who basically turned his back on running to go be a Presbyterian missionary. He, he says, I believe God made me for a purpose, but he also made me fast. And when I run, I feel his pleasure. Mm -hmm. The sheer delight of doing what one was made to do. That would have been our first parents. They were made to love God. They were made to love one another. And so the loveliness, just barely glimpseable, gives way to the heinousness of the state of sin. Our man has turned in on himself. The one whom he was made to love, he now hates with all that he is. And the fellow image bearers who were to be the object of his love, he now views with Malice and contempt and cruelty. Paul writes, the natural mind is at enmity with God. Heidelberg Catechism, is any man able to love God and love neighbor? To which it says, no, by my sin I am disposed to hate God and hate my neighbor. What a dark world that is. What ugliness ushered in by the state of sin. And I think it's with reference to that, that we ought to mourn because as eminently good and reasonable as this is, no one has ever done it for a moment, save one. Mm. No one has realized the fullness of these two most unobjectionable most beautiful commands for a moment, except for one. And that's lamentable. Because in Reformed theology, we differentiate between moral inability and natural inability. Moral ability and natural ability. You are all naturally capable of loving God fully and loving your neighbor as yourself. But we're unwilling. We don't want to. 
That's moral inability. That's not natural inability. And it establishes the intense lament ability about the reality that even as the redeemed, we still have cause to mourn. That we don't do this, not in its full beauty. Has anyone ever loved the Lord their God with all their heart, soul, or strength, even for a moment? Have you? Tell me. Have you? Is that lamentable? Sometimes it feels like we make that, we fail to make that distinction. Sin, our sin has not destroyed our natural abilities. It has destroyed our moral abilities. And because we still possess the natural abilities, it is intensely mournworthy that we refuse to yield what ought rightly be yielded to God and our neighbor. If we fail to see that this is the case, then we will become cold towards our sin. We'll shrug our shoulders and say, it can't be helped. And there is a sense in which the power of sin is vast, but if we lose the coordinate that says we ought to do this by every angle on this matter, he is most lovely, he made me to love him, it is good, and I don't do it, and that is lamentable. We lose that, and we lose this dynamic of humility that comes to pass by God pressing that upon our hearts. So we lament that no one save Christ has ever realized the excellencies of this most unobjectionable call. I hope I haven't lost you on that. I hope you feel that. I hope your theology has room for that. Please, or else I've failed. Or you've failed. Mm. But the good news is we don't end in a state of sin. We move to the state of grace. As we marvel at the one who loved enemies to make them sons. As we marvel at the one who ransoms hearts enslaved to malice to usher them in to his reign of truth and love. Since that we such that we now taste of the excellencies of this love. Such that while we do not fulfill the full excellence of this command, there's a desire to see it realized. Do you see the loveliness of love of God? Do you see how the Christian heart yearns to grow in love for God? Do you see how this is what Christ has brought to pass? Do you see how lovely love of neighbor is? Do you see how Christ loved his neighbor at great cost to himself to bring us into a community of love whereby we love one another at cost to ourselves? Do you see how this is the state of glory tasted now?
For what will glory be? It will be perfect love of God forever. It will be perfect love of brothers and sisters forever. It's a choice portion. One which we had abandoned in our sin, but which had been restored to us by an act of love from God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Father, give us hearts that delight to declare your free and boundless love extended unto sinners. And as you open up the vistas of this love before us, move our hearts to greater love for you and one another. For this we ask in Christ's name, amen.